So, um, you know, I want to start today, I want to talk a little bit about parenting, right? Have you ever looked at the Bible for information on how you should parent your kids? What you'll find is there's not a lot of information on the Bible on how you should do it, on what the right ways are to do it. You find most of it in Proverbs. Most of the information you find on parenting in the Bible is how not to do it. Okay, and, and you know, I'll tell you what, that's comforting because it's, you, you can find that easily outside of the Bible too. A lot, e- a lot easier to find is what not to do. Because parenting uh, is a difficult, it's a difficult thing to do. And David is making his mistakes. And we're going to learn, I mean, how would you like to have your whole life on record? We're going to learn from the mistakes that David makes as a parent today as we continue our series entitled Decisions That Nearly Destroyed David. David made a bunch of bad decisions that led to two huge bad decisions. He had adultery with Bathsheba, and then he orchestrated the death of her husband, Uriah. This is horrible, horrible stuff. He should have been put to death. God enables him to live, I think, partly as an example for us to show how he can transform a person who turns fully to him. So this is, last week we saw David turn back to God. It was very exciting. But we're going to see now that the prophecies of Nathan back in chapter 12 are going to prove to be true. And the prophecy is that you're going to have consequences. So you may make bad decisions in your life and then turn it around and make the right decisions, but there will be consequences for the bad decisions, and they will affect your life. And we're going to see how those affected David's life today. And before we go further, though, I want to encourage you to, we're going to go away from David next week, and I want you to look at Psalm 100. It's a classic psalm, sometimes called the classic psalm of thanksgiving. We're moving into the building, time to give thanks. All right, so we're going to talk about that next week. But this week we're looking at, uh, and I've got to look at it specifically. It's actually 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through chapter 15, verse 14. Last week I said read 13 through 16. I figured we're covering a lot of territory. Good to know all this stuff anyway. Um, and, and there's a lot of things we're talking about. We're not going to go verse by verse or it would take us forever. But as you have questions, please come and talk to me. Uh, it's one of the things that uh, I want to encourage you to do. Whenever you have questions, you know, you can email me if you don't catch me after church or whatever, and we can interact back and forth, but there's a lot of information, can't cover it all as deeply as I would like, so feel free to to contact me if you have any additional questions. Um, Today we're looking at this passage, and I'm going to call it parent problems. That's what we're looking at, and this is how we're going to approach it. I'm going to tell you the narrative. I'm going to just tell you the story, and I'll, I'll point out some high points, especially as it relates to David, and then we're going to look at some applications. All right, ready? Ready to jump into it? Okay, here we go. Um, the first thing that we learn is we're going to be talking about a t- period called now. So it says now. And in Hebrew, now means a couple years later, maybe. So David and Bathsheba have kind of turned things around. They've had probably a, a, a child at this time. The child died, we know. And then they had maybe another child. A, year, a couple of years have passed. And now we enter the story with a guy named Amnon. And Amnon is the crown prince of Israel. He is the heir apparent. We are told back in chapter 3 he is David's oldest son, and he seems to be apparently on the surface the person who will be the next king. He is probably about 20 years of age or older now, because David's been king for about 20 years. And he had him at the very beginning. And so we meet Amnon, and he is a smooth talker, but he also is a really creepy guy, okay? That's just, he's a creepy guy. And one of the first things we learn about him is he's talking to his cousin. He says, I'm depressed because, because I love 
my sister. Now, this is a harem that David has. He has all these multiple wives and kids, so this is his half-sister. I love my sister Tamar. And the word he uses in Hebrew is well described, I think, uh, in the message by Eugene Peterson, where he describes it as cultured lust. Cultured lust. In other words, he, this is a guy who, who practices lust. He, he's, today he would be a pornographer. This is a guy, and this is a little bit PG-13, okay? But, but I would describe him as a pervert, okay? And, and you'll see that. He is, kind of, he is a really creepy guy. And he's just, he's scoping on his half-sister. And so he and his cousin come up with a scheme for how he can essentially seduce her. And they decide, let's get David in this, because if we get him in it, nobody will suspect anything. So they call David in, and they say, oh, Amnon's not feeling good. He's sick in bed. So David comes to see him. He says, what's going on? Are you, what's wrong? You're not feeling well? You know, what's going on? And he says, I'll be better. Just please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat from her hand. Now, there's some red flags going on here. This is an unusual request. But not only that, but he says, I want her to do this in my sight. I don't like this guy. He creeps me out. I mean, he's just like, ew. Just, and you're supposed to see that, I think. Is that this guy is just a slimy dude. And so David should see this, though. We're seeing, I can figure, the, I can figure this out just reading it. How come he can't figure it out? But he doesn't. David just says, okay. So he has Tamar come. Tamar is described, she's probably a teenager, as being uh, very beautiful and a, and a virgin. She's a good girl. She's the younger sister of Absalom. Absalom is next in line for the crown. Um, she, uh, she dresses in this nice uh, robe that a virgin would wear. She seems just to be a, a cheerful little gal. She's going to go in and make what they would call probably the food that they have is described by scholars as soul food. Um, it was like uh, they, they would take cakes and twist them into the shape of a harp. And she's going to make this to make her brother happy. So she makes the food for him. And then he says, could everybody leave the room? And when they do, he goes after her. She tries everything she can. She throws all these different arguments at him. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's bad for you. It's bad for me. It's bad for the kingdom. It's bad for God's reputation. Don't do it. Maybe even somehow miraculously you can work it out when you get married. And he, he rapes her. And once he does, he feels shame and guilt and anger. And he turns on her and he, he blames the victim. And he gets angry, and he kicks her out of his room, and he bars the door. She mourns. She rips her clothes. She's crying. Her life is, is ruined, everything she's lived for up to this point. She goes to her big brother. What shall we do? He basically says, lay low. As a family matter, it'll be taken care of. Everybody waits for David. Amnon, I'm sure, is trembling in his boots. Absalom and Tamar are waiting to see what David will do. Everybody is waiting to see what David will do. David gets furious. David is beside himself. David is angry. And guess what he does? Nothing. What could he do? Well, there, normally you would consider marriage under the law if they were both, you know, could work that out. But the problem is, is that they're, they're related. So this is a complication where David needs to bring in his council of wise advisors to help him work out, and they have to figure out what we're going to do. David does nothing. He just lets it go. A couple of years pass by. A couple of years pass by, during which time Absalom won't talk to Amnon. Can you imagine the family meal? You're sitting together, and these guys don't even talk to each other. So, I mean, there is tension, and David just kind of ignores it. He just doesn't want to deal with it. And finally, Absalom goes to David one day, and he says, um, uh, David, we're going to go have go sheep shearing. 
And I want to invite you to come. He knows his father won't come. But I want you and all your servants and all my brothers to come with me. And we're going to go out and we're going to have a big festive event while we shear the sheep. And he says this to David. And this is how it goes. He says, but the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? I mean, you don't even talk to the guy. What is this all about? But Absalom pressed him until, what did he do? He let him go. Now, what was he thinking? I mean, I'm trying to be understanding here and say maybe he thinks, well, maybe he's going to make it up with them. You know, this is the time where they figure it out. I don't think so. I think David just doesn't want to be involved, you know, at this point. So David just says, whatever. So they go, and Amnon goes, and they're all having a good time, and they get Amnon drunk. And, you know, Absalom apparently doesn't have the nerve himself, but he gets his men to go and kill Amnon. Now, Amnon is dead. So Absalom runs away, and he runs as far away north as he can. His family, his mother's family, uh, his, his grandfather is a king in a little kingdom called Geshur, north of the Sea of Galilee, up in the mountains. And so they climb, 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 climb up up there, and he's way far away. And what does David do? David mourns for Amnon. I don't know why he would mourn for Amnon almost, but it shows you that even for a wayward child, he still loves his firstborn, and he's sad about that. But he's also very sad about Absalom because he really loves him. But what does he do about it? Nothing. He does absolutely nothing. And a couple years pass by. Isn't this a crazy, it's a crazy story, but this, it just keeps growing. And so now Absalom's up there, and finally Joab, Joab is his his nephew, he is his loyal, his loyal nephew and military commander, and he's a piece of work too, right? You know, he's type A overachiever, somewhat impetuous. He sees that this is a problem. David's sad. Absalom's supposed to take over for David. He says he's probably the best option we've got. We've got to get Absalom back in the picture here, and those are the thoughts that are probably going through his mind. And he also knows that David doesn't trust him. Because on one occasion, he killed a man named Abner, which extended a civil war. And David actually wanted to take him away from his, his, his role. And so, um, so he doesn't know what to do. So he gets a lady to do it for him, a professional wise woman called the woman of Tekoa. And she meets with David. And she uses a lot of the things that Abigail and Nathan had told David in the past, which he was probably aware of. She confronts him in a different kind of way. She goes to David asking advice. He says, you're the king. I need you to tell me what I should do. Um, what, what, should, what should we do here? He goes, what's your problem? She says, my problem is that my husband died. My sons fought each other and one killed the other. And now they want to take his life. And he's my last burning coal. He's all I have left. I'll lose everything. And the whole lineage will be lost. And I, I think there's more involved here. This is extenuating circumstances. And I, I, I just don't think it's right that they would kill my son in these circumstances. And um, David kind of is curious at first, but then he finally is won over and he says to the woman, as Yahweh lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And you know what she says? She says, well, that's interesting because my son is just the son who runs our clan, but your son, the crown prince, has been banished and not been brought back home. If you take care of my son, why wouldn't you take care of yours? And then she goes on as if she never said it. But David, you know, he kind of figures it out here. And he says to her, do not hide anything I ask of you. And the woman said, let my Lord, the king speak. Then David said, is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? 
And she's shocked. She said, you figured this thing out. And we see that David still has the ability to figure things out. He's just not applying himself. And so David says, I, I get what's going on. So he says, okay, okay, I'll bring Am Absalom back. So he tells Joab, bring Absalom back. Joab is gushing over with joy. He goes in and gets Absalom. He brings him back. And guess what David does? He doesn't see him for two years. Is this crazy? So if I'm Absalom, I'm getting a little upset at this point. But what do we know about Absalom? First thing we know, and we're told a lot about Absalom, is he's a very good-looking man. Strikingly good-looking. He is just, you know, really well-built and just got it all together. Um, and that is a theme, by the way, throughout the, the story of David, is that the book, you can't judge a book by its cover. The people that look the best on the outside may not be the best on the inside. Saul wasn't. David was better than his brothers that were, looked better than him more to be king. And now we see Absalom looks good. And as David is fading physically, Absalom is at his prime. But Absalom is insolent. He's arrogant. He's self-centered. He is the stereotypical, good-looking, spoiled, rich brat. And he wants what he wants. We're also told about Absalom that he had a lot of hair. I mean, that's the famous part about him. He had a lot of hair. Um, apparently, in those days, they thought that hair uh, had something to do with vitality. We know that's not true, right? Um, but, but having said that, um, he, his hair is said to be five pounds in weight, which would mean that he would be either on his knees all the time dragging his hair or he'd have an enormous neck. Um, it's not, not possible. So it's an exaggeration just to say, this guy has so much hair, you can't believe it. And it ties into the fact that, as we'll see later, his hair will be his undoing. But um, we know this about him. The other things we know about him is he had five kids, two sons, and three, no, three sons and two daughters. But later on in verse, chapter 18, it says he doesn't have any heirs. So it appears that his sons died. But he did have a daughter whom he named after his sister Tamar. And she, to preserve her line. And just out of interest, Tamar... The second Tamar actually has a daughter named Maacah, and Maacah marries King Rehoboam, the son of King Solomon. And so they kind of continue on in the Messianic line. Uh, interesting side note. But he's, you know, Absalom's getting irritated by all of this. And so Joab is not a real sensitive guy. He figures he got his job done. He's out at home kicking up his feet, watching, you know, television or something, and all of a sudden he finds out his fields are on fire, and his neighbor, Absalom, has set them on fire. And he says, I want your attention, and I want to get something done now. Go and tell my father I want to see him. So Joab says, okay, I guess it's long enough. So he goes and tells David, and they meet. And this is the record of their meeting each other. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. And our first thought is, how sweet. He bowed, his, bowed down and the, and the king kissed him. But, you know, that's what they always did. That's just standard protocol. I mean, it didn't matter how ugly the person was. You had to kiss him, right? You're, you're the king. It's like, oh, this is going to be tough. But, you know, you just do, you do what you have to do. Um, so he kisses his son. What he should have done is hugged him and embraced him and said, I love you. Forgive me for what's happened here. Let's, let's try to work this out. But he doesn't do that. And so Absalom leaves, but Absalom is more upset. And Absalom begins to work with people that are dissatisfied with David. And he gathers them around him. And then he goes to his father and he says, can I go to Hebron for a short time? And David doesn't even think anything of it. He doesn't even understand what's going on right underneath his nose. Oh, go ahead and go. So he goes there and he gathers an army. And he starts a revolt. And he comes back and he chases his father out of his beloved Jerusalem. That's our story for the day. Are you feeling, feeling encouraged yet? 
You know, the question you have is, how in the world could this happen? How did it happen? Now, I understand people will sometimes have a wayward child, but to have one son rape his sister and the other son kill his brother and then start a revolt against his father, this is serious stuff. Something is going wrong in the home. And so we're going to learn some basic lessons here. As we go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it tells us that all Scripture is available for us to teach from, to tell stories from and teach from, but, but also to learn what we've done wrong, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us for righteousness. And I believe that this passage teaches principles for us even today. And so let's take a look at some of the things that we can learn from David's parenting, okay? There's at least three things that he does wrong. The first thing that he does wrong, we probably could pick more. We're going to pick three. One is that he, it's what I call the chips off the old block. Have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed that families tend to um, pass their sins on from generation to generation? Ever seen that before? It's, it's not uncommon. It's prophesied here that this is basically going to happen in chapter 12. But Paul says this in Galatians 6, 7. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap. So what Paul is saying is that, you know, in a sense, God didn't even have to do anything. David had already set everything in motion. David's behavior meant that there were going to be consequences to the things that he had done wrong. I mean, you do things wrong, and it gets passed down to others in the family. Now, some people would say that it's just genetic. You know, I can't help it. I mean, I can't help it if I get angry with you. It's just genetic, right? You know, you, you, that, that's a cop-out. Um, you may have a bent in a certain direction, but you need to learn to develop it. Now, there are sometimes people may have some, some problems that are genetics, but those are, are more like they may have... Um, you know, there may be uh, chemistry, you know, uh, mental illness or things like that that they have to work through uh, or, or health issues that affect their behavior in some ways. But the vast majority of the time, you make decisions about whether you're going to follow what happened before you. And we all have those problems. We all have those issues that affect us in life. Is this guy just stop at somebody's house? Well, let's just pray. Father, I don't know what happened, but we just pray right now that you would take care of our neighbor. I know I've met her before. I'm forgetting her name right now. Very nice lady said that she was hopeful to come to a church with her brother at some point. So we just pray that you would keep them safe and protect them and, um, and, and, and pray that everything is all right. Um, thank you that the fire truck went away and it seems like things are. So we thank you for that. Amen. Okay, so we're, we'll continue on. So David, you know, he just basically, it gets passed on. You guys have problems with your family, right? And it gets passed on. Anybody? Yeah, I mean, if we're honest, I, I, I'll go first. I mean, my family, I remember, you know, alcohol is a big problem in my family. My, fa my grandfather died um, from drunk driving. Um, he, his car stalled and he was drunk. His, his car stalled on the railroad tracks. He got out to try to push it, train hit the car, and, and my, my grandfather died. He was 39. Um, my uncle's an alcoholic. My father was a binge drinker. I was introduced to alcohol at a younger age. Didn't start really drinking until I was a senior in high school. Um, one of the worst things I did, but the good thing is my freshman year in college, I committed my life to Jesus Christ. Where would my life be had I not done that? But that's what cut it for me. See, that cut it for me, that area. Uh, and, and you got to be so careful. I remember the other side there, of course, drinking is very common. Um, pornography. My grandfather, whom I love dearly, but he used to have subscriptions to Playboy. That was a big thing in the day. You know why people got Playboy? For the articles. That's what they'd always say, but they have really good articles. Um, so, um, but what I want to say to you is this. 
if you are a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, an older brother, a sister, somebody works for you, you have a neighbor, there's almost always somebody who's watching your life who's going to emulate what you do. And it's very important that you don't live in that way. And when you make mistakes, that you apologize for them because you do not want to go take people down that path. And it's amazing. You don't even realize the impact you can have on people's lives by the way you live your life. These things get passed down. And they can be things like anger, lying, you know, um, you know just saying things that you shouldn't have, gossiping. All that stuff can get passed down. And so it's important that you identify what are the things that have been passed down to me and that I'm likely to pass down, and how can I begin to curb those things, make it better, even stamp them out. And especially if you're a young, young family, this is a good time to say, hey, let's stamp it out now. Let's stop it where it is. Now, the second thing that David does is uh, what I call is where's dad? Where's dad? Where is he? He's just not there. He's not available for them when they need him. There's this thing that they say quantity time is important. Um, uh, the quality time is more important. But I, you don't really have quality time if you don't have quantity time. So there's this need for him to be there, and he's not there. Um, the issue is that he has to hold them accountable in his case. And by the way, there's two ways to look at this. I want to address this issue of discipline. Discipline's not a bad thing. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, God says that he loves whom he disciplines. If you love a person, you will tell them that you're doing harm to yourself or you're doing harm to others. You don't say, oh, just go ahead and keep, keep doing that to yourself. That never helps anybody. That just makes the situation worse. And so out of love, you say that. Now, people will argue. They'll say, but David's kids were all adults at this time. So he had no right to say anything to them. Once they're adults, they're on their own. That's half true. They are on their own, and you no longer have authority. But just as you would with a close friend, you still speak into their lives and say, I don't know if you should do that. You know, what you're doing is wrong. I'm not going to give you money because you've got a meth. Um, you're a meth addict. I'm not going to give you money and let you go out and get more meth. That isn't love. That's just enabling them to hurt themselves and hurt other people. And you are as much at fault as an accomplice as they are. So you've got to really be careful how you do these things. You have to be responsible. Now, having said that, David is not doing this. He's not doing any discipline at all. And he doesn't seem, if he didn't, he has authority as a king and he doesn't do anything. So I'm sure when they were kids, he wasn't doing anything. And so why? Why? Two things I can think of. One, which we pick on all the time. He had so many wives. Can you imagine this guy had so many kids, and he has all uh, kids going around from all these different wives. They all want to raise them differently. How crazy that was. Fortunately, we don't have to deal with that today, right? We don't have that problem. Unless you have a hidden harem. Actually, we do have the problem, don't we? It's called divorce and remarriage. We had a relative recently who died. He had four four of my wives, and I'll tell you, it was a mess. No time for the kids, and everybody was all over the place. Uh, God understands. There are extreme circumstances when God tolerates divorce, but it's not like, well, I guess we don't feel like living together anymore. You know, I don't like the way you squeeze the toothpaste. You know, I mean, I think you go your way, I'll go mine. It doesn't work that way. And we have to stop that cycle because it's really difficult. If you are already in a divorce cycle, God, of course, forgives. But now the challenge is for you to do the best you can to try to 
you know, spend as much time as you can with all those kids. And, and it may mean that you have to make some severe sacrifices in order to enable that to happen. But you got to do that because those kids are important, especially when they're young. And this is the thing I want to emphasize is when your kids are little, that's when you prioritize your time with them. So you got to do everything you can to make sure that you're with your kids. Now, if, you, if you're married and you don't have kids yet or you're expecting kids, um, congratulations to the Duns. Michelle, back there, they're going to have a baby boy. That's exciting, you know, but, but now's the time to stop and say, um, we're married for life. You know, don't go into marriage unless it's for life. And that doesn't mean, okay, well, I guess we'll live together. No, because you live together, that's marriage in God's eyes in, in many cases because, you know, sex, comes, became, sex came before the wedding ring. That was how you identified yourself as married. So, so don't do that. Just If you're going to get married, if you're going to commit yourself to a person, it's 100%. Now, the next thing that we see that David, I think, had trouble with here um, was his career. He had an extraordinarily busy career. And does that not relate to us today? We can get pretty busy with our careers. And sometimes I think it's understandable. We have people that go in the military. We have people that are first responders. I have as myself, as a pastor, you know, I mean, it's not like somebody calls me up and says, somebody just died, can you get over here right away to help us do this time? And I say, well, you know, right now I'm with my kids and we're watching Frozen 2. Um, you, know, you, don't, you don't do that, right? And you would think how heartless and how cruel that is. So there are times you have to adjust and your kids just have to understand and you have to do what you have to do. But you still have to make every effort you can to be available for your kids. And I think it's, it's very interesting that two of the qualifications for elders, so this is leadership that, and, and the kind of qualifications we should all aspire to. One is that you should be the wife of one husband or a one-woman man or a one-man woman. You know, you, you should only have that person, should be the, the person that you have. And that's what we talked about first. And the second is that you should be a person that can manage your household well, which doesn't mean that it's perfect because you don't get to choose your kids, right? You know, some of those kids could be kind of, some kids are more crazy than others, but that you manage them well while they're under your roof. When they go off on their own, they're on their own, but you manage them well. Those early years are the priority. It's all about relationships with God and relationships with one another. You've got to prioritize those early years. If you've got to make sacrifices, make them then. I know that's hard because you may not be as wealthy. But you know what? God is not as concerned about your wealth. He's not as concerned about your career. He is mostly concerned about your relationship with him and one another. And if you aren't making your kids a priority while they're in your house, then you, it, it, all other stuff doesn't matter. That's what God is calling you to do at that time, and you've got to do it. Now, how you do it is a little bit trickier, but I, I know that God will take care of you. I know when our kids are sick, especially Carrie sacrificed her career. I was at a job. You know, I had a job when my son had leukemia and my baby had a baby daughter, and I'm at this church. It was a church plant, and, the ch and it was dying, and my job was to come in and try to bring it life, and I'd been there for just like eight months or whatever, and my son gets sick. He's born, well, I think it was like a year into it, a year, year and a half into it. And everything's just going haywire. And I can put in like 20 hours a week between everything. And finally, I said, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to have to let this thing go. Well, what happens? You know, they said, we're going to have to close the church then. I said, okay. I've, my family is more important at this point under the circumstances. You know what? God took care of it. Everybody, we found a church for everybody. And I had job offers to leave the area and become a lead pastor elsewhere but I had a chance to be a children's pastor and stay near the hospital with my family. So that's what I did. And you know what? I have no regrets. 
I'm here today and I'm back in the saddle and things are going well. But that was the decision I had to make. I make no, I have no regrets for that. That's what you, you, sometimes you have to do those things and God will take care of you in different ways. Now, I, I want to notice that in the Bible, we have people like Dorcas and Priscilla um, and Lydia who are all professional women. The Bible allows for women to work, but you've got to work it out how you're going to do that. Again, when they're young is when you make your sacrifices but, and when they're in the home. But at the same time, I've seen parents do it very well, very well, where they both balance it between themselves and the kids do really well and they turn out great. I don't know. That's your, your story. It's not mine. But you've just got to find that balance and make sure you're there for your kids. That's, that's the point. Um, now, the last one is per, what I call parental paralysis. Um, and in parental paralysis, um, it opens another topic. Um, but this whole parental paralysis thing, um, David, uh, David isn't disciplining his kids. And we're saying, what is it? What is it seems to be holding him back? We've already covered one, you know, it's just not spending time with them. But the second one that I think is really holding David back um, is that he's not walking with the Lord. And, and this is what I want to stress to you. I think this is the most important thing to stress to you. It's the thing that is most likely overlooked. And that is the best thing you can do to be a good parent is this. Pray. Pray for your kids all the time. Don't be afraid if your kids see you praying. One of the biggest impacts of my life was seeing my grandmother praying for us one night. I woke up, we were in the twin beds, and, my, and she was visiting, and we had twin beds in the same room, and I looked over, my grandma's on her knees praying. Had a huge impact on me. Um, the other thing is, is to read your Bible and read it to them. One of the regrets I have, like with our daughter, I wish when all in, in high school we would have read more. I kind of thought, well, she's in high school. She doesn't need this as much. But I always read her the Bible all the time, every day, every night. We would go over that and, and talk. And I wish we would have done it more. You can't do enough of that. Read your Bible with your family. Talk to them about Jesus. Make it a way of life. You know, that's the main thing. You just make it part of your life. And then the other thing is to expose them to strong Christian people. Take them to church. Take them to Sunday school. Help them to be involved. I would say also share your faith. Let them see you share your faith with people. Take them with you overseas. You say, oh, wouldn't it be great to take a vacation to Berlin or Mexico or something? Go to Mexico and serve. Go to Berlin and see what our missionaries are doing and serve. That will have a far bigger impact on their lives for good than going sightseeing. Try to do that with them. I, I wish I'd have done more of that. Took my daughter with me down to an orphanage. We spent some time in Mexico, but I would have liked to have done more. So I, I encourage you to do those things. I am not going to guarantee that if you walk with the Lord that your kids will all turn out well. Because you know why? Ultimately, they have to make a decision. And you cannot control that decision. But I will guarantee you this. If you are walking with the Lord, you will be the best parent you can be. You'll be the best employee you can be. You'll be the best spouse you can be. You'll be the best friend you can be. So that's where you need to be. And that's the most important thing I can say today. The last thing that I see, though, with David that I want to hit on is a little complicated here. But I think that David is feeling like I was such a jerk. Who am I? Who am I to confront my kids? And that can happen to us. We feel like we failed. And then it's like, who am I to talk to them or talk to anybody else? And David falls into this trap. 
And I think what happens is you can fall off the horse one side or the other, especially if you've come from a dark past and you don't want it repeated by your kids. And I've seen people come down too hard on their kids, and I've seen kid people be too gracious, and both are just as bad. And David is too gracious, and he just lets it go. Um, and so I would say either way, most of us here are going to fall one way or the other. We're either going to be too strict or we're going to be too lenient, too gracious. And whichever side you're on, try to move to the other side a little bit. And that's probably one of the best things you can do. I know for myself, I wish I was more consistent. I would discipline well, and then I wouldn't. And then I just kind of get easy going, and then things get bad, and then I'd have to overcorrect. So it's better to, to keep that balance. I would encourage you just to be balanced in loving your kids regularly. And then finally, I would say the last thing is um, tell them you're sorry, you know, when you do things wrong. I, there's two things that strike me here. One is um, you love your kids. Um, and when you, when, when you love your kids and they know you love them, and you, they know you love them when you do discipline. My kids were happiest and best behaved when they were well disciplined and they were most warm and receptive when I apologized when I did things wrong. Now, I have gone through one other perspective I want to share with you today that I've been through is I've been through this whole idea of, you know, I don't feel like I'm qualified, you know, because we had problems. And, and, and some of you know the situation that we've had with our, our, with our daughter. Um, our, our daughter had a lot of struggle with our son dying, and we knew that she was going to have some struggles with that as she got older, so we were told. And that happened in teenage years. Things went well, but when she left home, she left the Lord, and she left us. And she doesn't talk to us anymore. And it's been tragic for us. It's broken our hearts. We really appreciate your prayers. And my parents tried to be gracious, and, and they, they made the situation so much worse. My family actually did, and that's brought a lot of strain. And so we've just been heartbroken. And, and I, I, I'll tell you, I can relate with David. I mean, I felt like, who am I to even be a pastor, you know, when this happened? I actually went to the pastors, to Mitch and Clifton. I went to the board of directors, and I said, should I resign? Because, you know, things aren't doing well at my home. And, and they said, no, because you, you raised your kids well. They were, she was always well-behaved and stuff when she was growing up. And there's some extenuating circumstances here. Uh, but still, it's broken my heart. It's something I've had to deal with. And I think in some strange ways, it's helped me to relate better with people and get closer to people because everybody has their problems. But I'll tell you, I've, I, I can tell you all the things I've done wrong. I can list them for you. I've spent a lot of time soul-searching. I have spent time thinking through this. And one of the things, a couple lessons I've learned, one, is that people don't usually talk, the people that talk the most about how you should raise your kids still have kids that are little, and when they get older, they stop talking about it. And I thought that was very interesting. Um, the other thing that I found is that when I look through the Bible and history and all the famous people, I hate to say this, but the averages are about 50% of the time that kids even regularly go to church, let alone become committed Christians. Because you can't control that. That's up to God. And so what I'm here to tell you is if you're a parent, you have no hope. <laughs> no, I would say the opposite. Still, you reach out to your kids because you train up the child the way you should go, and often they will come back to it. And I was reading about Spurgeon, the great preacher we talked a little bit about last week, and he said how he came to know the Lord is my mother and the message given to me. More often, I hear people that grow up in Christian homes will credit their parents, and especially their mom, for coming to know Christ or coming back to Christ. God is still working through you. It's just that they have to make a decision and they aren't always going to do it. So I would just say, live like Christ, do all the things we've said today and let the chips fall where they may. Don't beat yourself up. I used to think if your kids don't turn out well, then there's something wrong with you. And I've learned that 
You don't have that choice. But you can, do have the choice to be the best parent you can be for Christ and then allow him to take care of it. And don't beat yourself up. For parents who have had kids, um, who have had kids that have been wayward like David or like myself, um, I, I would offer you this. Uh, a few years ago, a number of years ago, as a young pastor, a bunch of young pastors came together and an older pastor was teaching us uh, at a retreat. And he shared with us that his son got a girl pregnant. Um, and he turned in his resignation and the elders said, no, they said, your kids are all doing well. You just have one kid who's not. And it turns out that this kid did all the right things, got married and turned it all around. It turned out well. But it was a dark time for him, a difficult time. And during that time, he received a phone call from Chuck Swindoll. Uh, Swindoll, you know, is a famous, a lot of you don't know, famous radio teacher and um, writer. And I've had several people who've known him. Really wonderful guy. Um, he was part of this church affiliation that I was actually part of at one time. So he called and contacted him. You know, he's a pastor of a famous church. This guy's not even that well known, but he heard about it. And so he went out of his way to contact him and he said, don't beat yourself up. I know you were a good parent from things I've heard about you and a little bit that I've known you. Don't beat yourself up. He says, don't feel bad. He says, I have the, the, the father that I most respect, the guy I most respect as father. He says, he, all, he has so many kids that are struggling. And then there was this silence, and the guy was thinking, who's he talking about? He says, I'm talking about our Heavenly Father. Most of God's children don't follow him like they should. And if they did, they'd all be robots. We have to make our own decisions, um, and you can't control that. And so you need to understand that you do the best you can, but God is the one who is ultimately in control. And for that reason, I want to end today by saying that if you are not yet in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that's where you need to be. Um, you need to admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave for you. And choose to follow Christ and put your faith in him alone. And if you know Jesus, if you know God, then no matter how bad it gets, no matter whether you have a parent or not, you have the perfectly heavenly Father. And he's always there for you. You join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the lessons that we learn through the hardships of life even for the mistakes that we make and how we can learn from them and teach others through them. Um, we thank you that you're God and that you take care of us and that we can always come back to you and you're the one who's ultimately in control. We pray these things in your name. Amen.